Good morning. My name is Donald. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance Church, and uh, what an awesome privilege it is to join you in worship together as we celebrate our Lord uh, together one more time. Uh, I want to add, first of all, to the announcements that were made, that is, that make mention of the drop box, that is, uh, just as you enter the main doors of the sanctuary will be to your right, and that drop box is used to receive your gifts. But it's also used that, uh, for instance, if someone wants to uh, fill out a card indicating that they desire to be baptized, that can be dropped in that box, or a number of other things that the drop box can be used. So please make uh, note of that, that it is there for your use. Um, I want to let you know that I have been promoted to a, uh, an unofficial member of the tech team. Uh, I've got the clicker. And, and, and I, I, I caught it. I think there was some subtle hint that, you know, we, we just can't keep up with you in those slides. Uh, you know, I, you know, so the, they didn't say that. They just said, we've got this wonderful clicker that, you know, might be nice to use. And I just want the tech team to know that my feelings are not hurt <laughs> much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what a delight it is to share. And uh, so, but I do want to let you know that if there's any issues with the slides, it's on me. So, uh, so please, please do not blame the tech team for that. Uh, beginning the year with prayer. As a matter of fact, beginning every day with prayer. Someone has said, I believe it was Ian Bounds, that says, a day without prayer is a boast against God. For we assume that we can handle the affairs of our lives on our own, and we can't. We can mess it up, and I've done that so many times. And so God has given us this awesome privilege of, of prayer. And so today, taking from the passage of Scripture uh, that was read previously, we're using the subject, prayer as worship. And what a most fitting time it is to pray. Lord God, you are the king of the universe. You are the creator and you are the sustainer of this world. You hold everything together by the word of your power. You are infinitely aware of every molecule that has ever existed. There's nothing that is hidden from you. You raise up kingdoms and you bring down kingdoms. You are able to give power and riches to those and you're able to take away those riches. You're able to heal and you're able to bring about joy and peace in our lives. And so we thank you, dear Lord, that you have chosen to set your love and affection upon us and to draw us unto yourself. Lord God, I'm keenly aware that even though I have prepared to share your word with this people, that ultimately it is you who ministers to the souls of those who are present. I may speak the words, even though the words, your Bible, your word, your truth, O oh God, still it is you who ministers to our souls. And so, Lord, may I never forget that. May we never forget that. And it is our prayer, even now, O oh God, that you would minister to our hearts that you would speak to us, O oh God, Lord, that you would not only give us information, Lord, but that you would give us your inspiration 
that you empower us to walk in the Spirit and give you praise, glory, and honor. And we thank you for this awesome privilege. For we ask these in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Some time ago, uh, I shared with you a question that was uh, first presented to me by, in my reading of A.W. Tozer, it says, what is the most important thing about you? And the answer is that it is the way you think. It is the way you think. Ultimately, it is the way you think about God. And I think I'm going to get fired right away. <laughs> okay, now I think I'm where I need to be. All right. Well, why don't you let me off with a warning, okay? <laughs> not, not a firing this time. But what is worship? The essence of worship is not action, but affection. God said through Hosea, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So it begins with what you hold in your heart toward God. This is why I believe that the greatest commandments are, as he, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the foremost, the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. There's something else A.W. Tozer talks about. He says that there are two words which ought to be in our thinking process. Those words are reality and reckon. First of all, God is real in the absolute and final sense that nothing else is. God is more real than the chairs on which you are seated. God is more real than this platform on which I stand. Here's the, here's, here's the bottom line, is that these things exist only because God is. So the greatest reality is God, the author of that law and dependent reality which makes up the sum of created things. God has objective existence independent of and apart from any notions which we may have concerning him. The worshiping heart does not create its object. It finds him here when it wakes from its moral slumber. The second word is reckon. This does not mean to visualize or imagine, but to count that which is revealed as true. Imagination is not faith. Imagination projects unreal objects out of the mind and seeks to attach reality to them. Faith creates nothing. It simply reckons upon that which already is. And so how important it is that we think about God. And that brings us to worship. What is worship? Worship is re relevant, reverent, and real and deep, authentic devotion and allegiance in its pledge to God. It includes the rituals or ceremonies by which reverence may be expressed but it also encompasses the totality of our being. 
It involves everything about us. The English word comes from the old English word worship, the word which denotes the worthiness of the one receiving the special honor or devotion. In Old Testament times, Abraham built altars to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This worship of God required no elaborate priesthood or rituals. He simply acted upon what God had revealed to him about himself. You know what? Let us be reminded that Jesus said that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in that way, to worship him in spirit and in truth, which involves both our emotions and our intellect. They both require thinking. Think about his love. Think about his holiness. Think about his perfect righteousness. Think about his absolute justice. But think about his goodness. Think about his grace that brought us through. For as the songwriter says, as high as the heavens are above, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Prayer is not just a primary work for the people of God. It is the blessed privilege of each and every one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ to enter into and enjoy a personal communion and relationship with God, the, the, the head of this entire universe. This God who is infinitely holy, perfectly righteous, absolutely just, is also good. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. Think about our pastor today. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. The term Father in the New Testament occurs many times in the Gospels. It occurs most often in the Gospel of John. And he presents to us God as Father. But we need to first of all think about God as the Father of Jesus. Let it be understood that there is a clear distinction between Jesus' relationship to the Father and our relationship to the Father. In John 20, 17, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. There is a clear distinction in what Jesus is teaching there, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. In Luke 10, 22, we find Jesus saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus claimed equality with God. John 5, 17 says, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I remind you once again that when Jesus says his father, there's a clear distinction. We're talking about the same God. But in a relationship, we're talking about a clear distinction between Jesus and us. 
Again, in John 10, 30-33, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. When Jesus claimed that unique relationship with the Father, he was claiming equality with the Father. He was claiming deity for himself. And yet, you and I get to come to this same God, this same Father, as dear children. We are children of our Father. And I'm going to catch up with myself in a minute here. We are children by the new birth. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and most of you know that story, in John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You know, back in the 80s, people were on this kick saying, I'm a born-again believer. And it ticked some people off. Some people were boasting about that in a way that was not appropriate. But may I suggest to you to, to say that you are a born-again believer is superfluous? That's nothing other than saying, I am a Christian Christian. If you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been born again. And if you have not been born again, you do not belong to him. Romans 8 9 says that if you do not have his spirit, you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter the second time in his mother's womb to be born again. And his mother says, you're not coming back here. But he totally missed the point. Jesus was really saying, look, and he explained it, look, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. Even if you could enter your mother's womb and that ain't happening, and you were born again, you'd still come out a sinner in need of a Savior because you'd still be born with an old sin nature. And one of us things that we forget is that sin first and foremost, is a condition. We tend to relegate sin only to deeds. The sin deeds happen because we are sinners and we were born that way. And so we need to be born again and Jesus is the only way that that could happen. He says, unless you're born of the water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We're children also by adoption as well as the new birth. I am so grateful for Scripture 
Because if it were not for scriptures, I would not know about this awesome God who has loved me. I might know that God exists, but I would not know about this God who loves me. And you know what? I think I'm going to just forget my slides and just go on and trust me that it's here. I'm taking it from the book. I'm taking it from here. So we're children by the new birth, but we're also children by adoption. Uh, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the saints at Ephesus. He said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And mind you, people have a problem with that saying, before the foundation of the world. But that's what the Word of God says. You see, we want to believe that we at least, if we don't control it all, that we at least control some part of it. But the Word of God says that God is in control from start to finish. And I, God said it, and I believe it. And it says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The term Abba is a term of endearment. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He came to bestow sonship upon you and upon me by going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to satisfy the justice of God. And so we've been invited into a relationship with God. We've been invited into intimacy with the Father. Stephen Iyer said, God does not have favorites, but he does have intimates. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he began with the words, Our Father, this is an invitation to know and commune with God on a personal level to enter into a joyful, intimate relationship and communion with the creator and sustainer of the universe. Prayer is not where we just present our petitions. It is where we spend time alone with our Heavenly Father. What an awesome privilege God has given to us. Think about it. Sinful creatures such as we are, and yet He desires to commune with us. And prayer is that one platform that He's given us to come and commune with him. And when we pray, there are four things that ought to be included. The first one is adoration. The second one is praise. The third is, is thanksgiving. And then the fourth is petition. I'm not going to rub those today, but remember those. Adoration, praise, thanksgiving, and petitions. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. In our Western culture, names are rarely anything more than a label of identification that distinguishes one person from another. Sometimes people are given nicknames because of certain character traits that uh, a child may be demonstrating. But seldom do people give prophetic names to their children. What is so important about God's name? God's name is of supreme value because it is an expression of his essence which speaks of his character, his nature, and his attributes. Psalms 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 36.7 says, How excellent is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wing. Our God is holy. And while the word holy is sometimes used in reference to ceremony, uh, the primary use of the word describes the nature of God, which is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. It is the one attribute of God that encompasses all of his other attributes. His love is a holy love. His love is a pure love. And so when we pray, we're to remember that God, above everything else, yes, he's the God who is the God of love, but he's also a God who is holy. Many of you are familiar with a woman in the Bible whose name is Hannah. And Hannah, Hannah was one of two wives of her husband. And uh, one wife had given birth to children, and Hannah was barren. And Hannah was in agony. And you can read about Hannah in 1 Samuel. Uh, she was in agony. And she prayed and listened to her prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And don't miss this. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. We learn about the holiness of God because God has revealed himself as being holy. Leviticus 22 says, You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Do not, do not profane my name, God says. We're all familiar with Moses one of the most well-known characters in the Bible. But Moses had an encounter. His very first encounter with the Lord was to understand that God is holy. As he saw, and we, we remember the, the story of the burning bush, but well, we won't go through all of the details about that, but, but when Moses approached the burning bush, God spoke to him, and then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That was his first encounter. I am holy. Then Moses said to God, 
in Exodus 3, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. I depend on no one. I depend on nothing for my existence. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name for all generations. If you remember nothing else about God, remember that God is holy. There's another character in the Bible named Joshua, another famous one. And Joshua 5.15 says when, when, when he was about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, he met one as he was alone meditating, and he saw him, and he wanted to ask, he asked the question, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the answer was no. No, I'm come as captain of the Lord's host. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The people's hallowing of Yahweh grew out of a recognition of God's holiness that God had revealed to them. And because God had bestowed upon us the divine privilege of addressing him as Abba, as Papa. He's demonstrating that he, the infinitely holy God of the universe, who is otherwise unapproachable, has, through the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, has made himself approachable to unworthy creatures such as you and I. And to that, you ought to say, not because I said it, but because it's true, you ought to say, praise the Lord. God who is otherwise unapproachable. And to draw that point out, please come with me to Isaiah chapter 6. The text reads, in the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I hear people talk about, I stood face to face with the Lord, of, Lord Jesus Christ. I stood face to, to, with this glorified one. And I had this conversation and I said, Really? Do you remember what John, who had laid on Jesus' breath before he went to the cross, when he saw him in the book of Revelation in his glorified form, you remember what happened in the book of Revelation? He says, I fell down dead as though I was, was dead. And you stood, and you didn't fall. 
standing face to face. Something is wrong with that picture. Hmm. Think about it. In Isaiah's encounter, he saw the seraphim in addition to the Lord high and seated, seated on his throne. And it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. And while the smoke was filling the temple, the seraphim, each having six wings, covered two, uh, that covered their feet with two of the wings, covered their face with two wings, and with two they flew. Think about this picture. Seraphim are creatures that have never sinned. And yet, in the presence of Almighty God, they covered their faces. Never sinned! And yet they dared not approach the God of the universe without their faces covered. And not only that, as they were calling out to one another, they called out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And when you think about that repetition three times, there is no other of God's attributes where you find in the scriptures where it's repeated three times like that. God is the God of love, and we know that because the Word of God tells us, but it does not say God is love, love, love. God is God who is righteous, but we do not find where it says God is righteous, righteous, righteous. But of that one attribute, those who have never sinned cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Amen. And so when we approach this God, we approach one who is infinitely holy, who is perfectly righteous, who is absolutely just. No wonder Isaiah said, Woe is me for I am ruined. I have had a glimpse of that which is ultimately holy. How many of you are familiar with the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Uh, one of the movies in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, written, uh, the books were written by C.S. Lewis, Christian. Well, in that movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a dialogue between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver along with uh, the four humans, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And the discussion is about Aslan. After learning that Aslan is a lion, Susan asks, is he quite safe? <laughs> Mrs. Beaver said, if anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. God-honoring prayer builds a healthy knowledge of his holiness and a passion for his glory. And his glory trumps everything. Passion for God's glory affects everything in our lives. And it begins with our worship. And ladies and gentlemen, many passages of Scripture can be used as prayer. I often find in the Psalms, I can repeat those psalms, but I can repeat them in the form of prayer. 
One of my favorite ones is Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he talks about all of the marvelous things that God has done for us. And I personalize those as I read that. But then when we think about that, we think about not only just what we do on our knees, but about our entire lives of living it. First Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he says, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so a passion for God's glory affects our worship. It affects our personal holiness. It affects our personal evangelism and the evangelism of the church. Knowledge of God's holiness and passion for his glory will give our evangelism the power that it needs. John Piper wrote some years ago, Missions exist because worship doesn't. I, I don't generally like to pick on other churches, and this is not my intent today, but it just, something is just stuck in me. And I'm almost done. I will not call the name of this church. But I happen to be in this church in line to take care of some business uh, relating to the government. And I have to be standing by the table where they have a lot of uh, leaflets out on the table and uh, their mission statement and their statement of faith on there. And I, happened to, I was standing there so long I had a chance to just glance at some of those and read through some of those. And, and I found nothing in there that talks about sin and Jesus Christ coming to rescue us from sin. I saw a lot about social activities, but a passion for God's glory will keep God at the forefront of our mission endeavor, will keep God at the forefront of our evangelism. Listen, many people I hear pray, I want my relatives to be saved. But many times people are wishing for their relatives to be saved is because they want to keep them out of hellfire. Let me say to you, Jesus did not save you to keep you out of hellfire. Now, for me, that's a pretty good deal. But that's just not his number one reason for saving us. He saved us to bring us to a right, loving relationship with himself and with his Father. Evelyn Underhill, I don't know if she's still living or not, wrote back in 1928, and I'm guessing she's no longer living, to the Church of England clergy. A couple of things she said that she said, number one, she said, if the Holy Spirit were taken from the average church, 95% of what is going on would continue. Boy, that struck me. If the Holy Spirit were taken from the average church, 95% of what is currently going on 
would continue. Then she said, we are drifting toward a religion which consciously or unconsciously keeps its eye on humanity rather than deity. We talk of men and their needs, their problems, their programs, their methods, their efforts, their sermons, their songs, their books, their churches, and their organizations, and somehow we've lost sight of the fact that worship has to do with being more conscious of God than man. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And we need to keep that in mind. When we think about the reason that Jesus saved us, we need to be mindful of how to pray. One of my favorite passages of scripture that I use often in prayer is what Paul wrote to the saints at Colossae. After thanking God for all that he had seen him do in the lives of those individuals, that I pray that they will be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they may walk in a manner that is worthy of you, that they may be fruitful in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. When was the last time we prayed that concerning new converts and for one another? It is all about him. And by the way, near the end of that movie that I just mentioned, there's a Mr. Tumnus who was talking with Lucy who said concerning Aslan, after all, he's not a tame lion. But Lucy said, but he is good. He is good. As we do not merely as a form, we do this because Jesus said we should do it. When he had finished supping, supper, he broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. As we come together, every Sunday we come together, we come to celebrate. And we, like no other people in the world, have a reason to celebrate. His name is Jesus. We celebrate him in our singing. We celebrate him in our testimonies. We celebrate him as we talk one with another out in the foyer or as we come here and when we leave we celebrate we continue to celebrate him he's worthy 